welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, this is uh, David Lambauer, and I'm currently the Congenital Cardiac Surgery Fellow at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And today it's my pleasure to be talking with uh, Dr. Marshall Jacobs, who is the Professor of Surgery and Director of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery Outcomes Research at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Today I'll be discussing with him anomalous connection of the left coronary artery from the pulmonary trunk. Today I want to start off with a case scenario. Dr. Jacobs, a mother brings her three-month-old infant to the emergency department. Presentation is notable for tachypnea and failure to thrive. A systolic murmur is auscultated at the apex. Initial workup includes a chest x-ray and an EKG. Chest radiograph demonstrates cardiomegaly, and an EKG has deep Q waves in leads 1, AVL, and the left precordium. Also noted is some ST segment elevation and T wave inversion. Dr. Jacobs, what is your differential diagnosis for this patient? Thanks, David. Baby at uh, about 12 weeks of age, presenting with signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure or more broadly cardiac insufficiency and obvious cardiomegaly on chest x-ray and electrocardiogram showing ischemia. And I think what you described is a fairly typical pattern of anterolateral uh, infarction. That sounds highly indicative of and very consistent with the presentation of anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery. Of course, one has to keep in mind uh, that the differential diagnosis includes dilated cardiomyopathy or cardiomyopathy of multiple etiologies that can be familial, can be metabolic, can even be acquired from something such as myocarditis. And then uh, while very much less common than anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery, there are other coronary artery anomalies that can present in the fashion that you described. Notably, one has to keep in mind uh, left coronary artery osteoatresia. But the, the clinical presentation that you described is fairly typical for the uh, early presentation of anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery. And the reason is as follows. These babies, for the most part, have good cardiac health in utero. The explanation for that is simply that in the normal human fetal circulation, the pressure in the pulmonary artery is similar to the pressure in the aorta. And in fact, the oxygen saturation in the pulmonary artery is similar to the oxygen saturation in the aorta so that both the right coronary with its normal aortic origin and the left coronary with its anomalous pulmonary artery origin are perfused in similar fashion in utero. Things change postnatally in relation to two events. One's closure of the ductus arteriosus and the other is the gradual diminution of the pulmonary vascular resistance. And as that happens, unless the development and acquisition of an intercoronary circulation takes place very, very quickly, 
that what happens is over a period of weeks, typically progressing between six and eight weeks to the 12 weeks that you noted, this infant would exhibit more and more signs of cardiac insufficiency based on ischemic dysfunction of the left ventricle. The electrocardiographic changes with that clinical presentation are pretty much pathognomonic, but not sufficient to make the diagnosis. Ultimately, one has to rely on imaging techniques to make the diagnosis. So how would you proceed then with further management of this patient? Well, obviously the baby needs to be stabilized from a medical standpoint, and in in the most extreme circumstances, a baby could require both mechanical ventilatory support and uh, medical inotropic support during uh, further evaluation. But since the presentation is generally one of tachypnea, irritability, poor feeds, and things like that, if the baby presents and is not in too much of a dire circumstances, the next thing is to get a good 2D echocardiogram with Doppler color flow mapping. And what one would be looking for is to confirm the diagnosis of anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery would be a short axis view that shows number one normal origin of the right coronary artery from the aorta and does not show normal origin uh, of the left coronary artery from the aorta. The secondary signs would be that the right coronary artery is typically somewhat enlarged, but specifically what one looks for on color flow mapping is reverse flow in the left coronary artery, and then pathognomonically would be the blush of color flow where the reverse flow in the left coronary artery continues into the pulmonary artery itself. So for our patient, we go ahead and obtain that echocardiogram and it demonstrates a dilated, poorly contracting left ventricle with an ejection fraction around 20%. There's severe mitral regurgitation, an abnormally large right coronary is present, and an anomalous connection of the left coronary artery to the pulmonary trunk is present with retrograde flow. So we have confirmed the diagnosis. What are the indications for taking this patient to the operating room, and and how quickly should we do that? Well, the, the indication for surgery is making the diagnosis. There's no medical therapy for this lesion. There is, interestingly, a kind of bimodal presentation where the largest number of patients present with a scenario similar to what you described uh, in the first few weeks of life, and they typically have very diminished left ventricular shortening. They typically have very dilated left ventricles, and I think it's fair to say that when one has Uh, made the diagnosis, there's virtually nothing to be gained by postponing surgical intervention unless there's an intercurrent medical problem that would somehow uh, need to be addressed. The second limb of the bimodal uh, presentation occurs generally uh, later in childhood or uh, even during adulthood, and in those circumstances, Uh, Typically, the patient has benefited from the development of significant right coronary to left coronary collaterals, which have resulted in uh, less dire impact on the uh, function of the left ventricle, though they may present uh, in childhood with ischemic symptoms such as syncope, arrhythmias, or chest pain uh, during exercise, or more rarely may even be a benign presentation in adulthood 
as either an incidental finding or when one hears the murmur consistent with the left to right shunt whereby coronary flow spills off into the pulmonary artery. But I think uh, for purposes of this discussion, the diagnosis itself uh, is the indication for surgical repair and very little is gained by postponing it in any other way. Let me just say as a caveat that if one had all the findings that you described uh, but did not actually observe the color flow into the pulmonary artery from the left coronary artery, you'd have a very high index of suspicion, but I think you would feel obligated to confirm the diagnosis absolutely, which traditionally in the past was most conventionally done in the cath lab with an aortic root injection, where you'd actually see the filling of the large right coronary, the flow from right to left, and you'd actually observe puff of dye into the pulmonary artery. Nowadays, there are centers that have experience with advanced axial imaging, either with CT or MRI, and in those circumstances, that may serve as a substitute for cardiac catheterization, which in the past was kind of the gold standard. Then echocardiogram uh, may be able to confirm the diagnosis, but it cannot exclude it. So also on our preoperative echo, uh, it demonstrated severe mitral regurgitation with reduced left ventricular function. Should we be ready to perform a mitral valve repair in the operating room? Yeah, very, very important question. I would say that in a very large fraction of cases uh, that present as this patient did uh, early in infancy with a very dilated left ventricle with poor shortening, mitral regurgitation would be the rule rather than the exception. So I can tell you that there are circumstances, particularly if there has been papillary muscle infarction, where mitral regurgitation is likely to persist even after a successful repair consisting of accomplishment of a two coronary system. However, in the vast majority of cases, what's observed is what we would refer to as functional mitral regurgitation, where it's a consequence primarily of annular dilatation in the setting of a dilated left ventricle and poor ventricular function. And in the majority of instances, despite the fact that the EKG pattern is a pattern of anterolateral infarction, uh, in most cases, not only will left ventricular function improve over time after a successful operation, but mitral regurgitation will likewise improve. So in the vast majority of cases, the goal of the operation is to establish a good two coronary system. And the expectation is that a gradual recovery from the ventricular dysfunction that resulted from chronic ischemia is most likely to be accompanied by reduction and even in many cases, a complete resolution of the mitral regurgitation. That can take weeks to months to occur, but it's a usual expectation. When you said, should we be prepared to repair the mitral valve, I would say if you're convinced on the basis of seeing, frankly, infarcted papillary muscles, that it may be necessary at the first setting to do something for the mitral valve, but that would be relatively uncommon, I would say however, that it's very important to monitor mitral valve function postoperatively as the ventricular function begins to recover because persistence of the mitral valve regurgitation can be a tip-off to a less than successful 
revascularization procedure. I think depending upon whose surgical experience you rely upon for information, the number of patients who have to go back for a mitral valve procedure, either early or late after repair of a anomalous left coronary artery uh, from the pulmonary artery varies from you know 0% to 24%, but on average is generally something less than 10% of patients. So how has the uh, surgical management of these patients uh, evolved over the years? Well, the first surgical interventions for uh, this anomaly consisted simply of ligation of the left wing trunk. And this would be uh, efficacious in a circumstance where a patient had developed adequate collateral circulation between the right coronary and the left coronary, and where the physiology was basically of left to right shunt with some spilling of the coronary circulation into the pulmonary artery and the potential uh, for coronary steel. So in that circumstance, there were instances in the past where a patient had survived into childhood and benefited from ligation of the left coronary uh, main trunk, giving them a one coronary system, but without the left to right shunt and without the coronary steel. Obviously, the circumstances under which this is going to be beneficial are highly selected and don't represent a large segment of the disease population. Uh, But thereafter, surgeons attempted and in many cases successfully created two coronary systems, either by revascularizing the proximal left coronary with a branch of the aorta, and that was accomplished by a turndown of either the subclavian artery or the left common carotid artery, or by graft interposition. And in the earliest efforts to do that, it was accomplished with a saphenous vein graft. I think those are all pretty much operative techniques of historical interest. I think a fascinating operation which evolved after those is what's referred to today as a Takeuchi procedure, and it's named after a a very innovative uh, surgeon in Japan. And this was an operation whereby one created a two coronary system in the following way. A small uh, aortopulmonary window would be fashioned uh, between the proximal ascending aorta and the main pulmonary trunk and using either an anterior flap of pulmonary artery wall, which is what Takeuchi himself used, uh, or uh, a small graft of prosthetic material, uh, one creates a tunnel from the aortopulmonary window inside the main pulmonary trunk uh, to the orifice of the left coronary artery. This then creates anti-grade two coronary system. uh, And for many years prior to the common adoption of coronary reimplantation, with which people became familiar largely through the adoption of arterial switch surgery for transposition. For many years before surgeons became comfortable, facile, and familiar with coronary transfer, Takeuchi repair with the aortopulmonary window and a, essentially a tunnel or fistula from the window to the coronary orifice was the uh, prevalent technique. It did have some Uh, potential late complications. One needs to reconstruct the main pulmonary trunk in the area where that flap is mobilized and supravalvar pulmonary stenosis was a not uncommon complication and occasionally there would be 
uh, leaks or fistulas uh, from this tunnel uh, into the uh, pulmonary artery. So I think that that operation was performed fairly commonly uh, throughout the 1970s, even into the 1980s. And there's an occasional circumstance even now where a surgeon decides that the actual site of location of the uh, ostium of the left coronary artery within the pulmonary artery uh, would make mobilization and uh, reimplantation technically challenging and may even today resort on some occasions uh, to a technique reminiscent of the Takeuchi operation. But for the most part, excision of the left coronary origin uh, with a surrounding button or flap of tissue from the pulmonary artery and mobilization and reimplantation of that button or flap into the aorta to create a two coronary system from the aorta uh, would today be by far the most prevalent technique in use. Okay, thank you. I think that gives us a very good understanding of the uh, evolution of the management of these patients. As far as their surgical management in the modern day, what do you think the key elements of uh, repair are? Uh, the key elements of repair are timing, and we discussed that earlier. There's very little gained uh, by postponing uh, the operation once the diagnosis has been confirmed, and then uh, smooth and expeditious uh, early phase of the operation, uh, getting the patient onto cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, decompression of the left side of the heart with appropriate venting, usually through the right superior pulmonary vein, though other techniques are certainly available. And then one can uh, usually, though not in every instance, get a sense of the uh, location of the origin of the left coronary artery uh, from the pulmonary artery. One wants to uh, ligate and divide uh, the ductus or the ligamentum and mobilize the branch pulmonary arteries so that one has good access to the front and back and sides of the main pulmonary trunk, etc. So once that uh, exposure has all been accomplished, the next important element of the operation uh, is myocardial protection. One establishes bypass, and I think usually with some degree of uh, hypothermia, which is you know adjunctive in terms of uh, both myocardial protection and uh, somatic protection. And then unlike the normal circumstance where one can cross clamp the aorta and inject uh, anti-grade cardioplegia into the aortic root with the expectation uh, of good distribution to all the myocardium, you have the problem here of one coronary being connected to the pulmonary artery. So I think a good idea is to carefully and gently place tourniquets around the right and left branch pulmonary arteries, which we'd mentioned previously uh, mobilizing, and snugging those tourniquets before administration of your anti-grade cardioplegia into the aortic root. This prevents the circumstance where all the cardioplegia would flow from the right to the left and uh, spill off into the pulmonary artery, essentially a coronary steel mimicking one of the aspects of the pathophysiology. So to ensure a good delivery of cardioplegia to all of the myocardium, including the critically important uh, myocardium in the distribution of the left coronary artery, one wants to deliver anti-grade cardioplegia 
with the pulmonary artery branches snug. That's probably in many instances a satisfactory approach, but I have personally always felt it important uh, after creating an anterior pulmonary arteriotomy to also use something like a very atraumatic soft-tipped Spencer Millet uh, catheter and then selectively infuse a second generous dose of cardioplegia solution into the left coronary itself within the uh, main pulmonary artery. So then one decides whether the location of the coronary ostium within the pulmonary artery is amenable to excision, mobilization, and transfer. And in the vast majority of cases, it is. In the majority of cases, the coronary ostium is located either in the right-hand facing sinus, which would be posterior in the main pulmonary trunk, or the left-hand facing sinus, which would be anterior. And in either of those circumstances, in the vast majority of cases, one can transect the main pulmonary trunk proximal to the branches, carefully identify and then excise coronary origin with a generous surrounding button of tissue as one would do in an arterial switch operation and then transfer it and, and implant it into the aorta. There's a couple of technical things that require attention. One is that there are very often a large number of tiny collateral vessels externally around the entrance of the coronary into the pulmonary artery and one has to be careful to control those and have good hemostasis so you don't wind up with bleeding in an awkward location afterwards. The next is one needs to carefully mobilize the proximal portion of the left coronary artery from the epicardium as one would for arterial switch surgery and then select the appropriate site for implantation. When it's from the left-hand facing sinus, which is anterior, it's relatively easy to identify the appropriate site anterolaterally uh, on the left side of the ascending aorta. If it's located in the posterior or right-hand facing sinus, which in my experience has been the most common scenario, then it helps actually to make a vertical anterior aortotomy and to look within the lumen of the aorta to grasp that button, bring it over to the posterolateral aspect of the aorta, and probably from inside the aorta, uh, identify the site and incise the site at which it's going to be uh, re-implanted. Doing that with the aortotomy for exposure within the aorta minimizes the chance of your aortotomy uh, injuring the aortic valve and maximizes the chance of placing it in a location which is both suitable and results in the least tension. Having accomplished the repair, you know, one warms and makes preparation to come off of cardiopulmonary bypass, and I think one has to be prepared and have an expectation that there's not going to be a miraculous, immediate, dramatic improvement in left ventricular function. So I think it's very important to monitor left atrial pressure to get some inotropic support going and in place before uh, weaning cardiopulmonary bypass, and then to carefully monitor left atrial pressure as a measure of left ventricular function as one attempts to come off bypass. And it's, it's not at all unusual, uh, even on a modest level of inotropic support, to come off of cardiopulmonary bypass with left atrial pressure in the teens. I think if, if one cannot 
come off of cardiopulmonary bypass uh, with an adequate pressure and signs of adequate output, the left atrial pressure less than 20, then one must ask themselves, A, has the operation been technically successful? B, is there such a severe degree of mitral regurgitation as to be prohibitive at this point, which is something that you'd look at intraoperatively uh, with echocardiography? Or C, is it going to be necessary to provide some temporary mechanical circulatory support as a bridge to uh, recovery? Uh, keep in mind that I said in most instances, mitral regurgitation will persist for a while after a successful repair and only gradually over weeks or months diminish considerably. So, so really what we're talking about is the expectation of of coming off bypass with a relatively high left atrial pressure, certainly within the teens, would not be unusual on a moderate amount of uh, inotropic support if those things uh, are not accomplished in the setting of what seems to be a technically successful operation with an echo that shows color flow into both coronary arteries, uh, et cetera, then one should be prepared to provide temporary mechanical circulatory support, either in the form of ECMO or left ventricular assist. And I think if you look at large experiences, the requirement for mechanical circulatory support after repair of anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery in individual series ranges from zero to 20 percent, but averages about eight percent. And I think in the STS congenital heart surgery database was also about eight or nine percent. Now let's uh, change the scenario a little bit and discuss some uh, different patients. Uh, let's say we have a 30-year-old uh, asymptomatic female that uh, is incidentally found to have an anomalous origin of the left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery on CT imaging. How can we explain this delayed presentation? It's a very good question. Delayed presentation in the adults usually reflects a process by which the patient had the good fortune to develop collateral circulation between the normal right coronary artery and the anomalous left coronary artery with a time course that mitigated against very severe consequences of early ventricular dysfunction. So that these patients who present in adulthood as we said earlier, often they present simply because one hears the murmur uh, of the left to right shunt. Uh, very often these patients have uh, right dominant coronary circulation, which is, you know, sort of an incremental uh, favorable factor or benign course rather than a malignant course. And uh, in this circumstance, they too should undergo repair and have establishment of a two coronary system with anti-grade flow. I don't think opinions are absolutely unanimous as to whether in the adult with late presentation this is best accomplished by excision, mobilization, and reimplantation, uh, which would still be the preferred procedure for many, many surgeons, or by, for example, internal thoracic artery uh, grafting to the left coronary with uh, occlusion of the orifice uh, within or just external to the main pulmonary trunk. And let's say a young congenital cardiac surgeon takes a a patient back to the operating room for routine closure of a ventricular septal defect. 
and then later that patient subsequently develops myocardial ischemia and severe left ventricular dysfunction. What has the young cardiac surgeon overlooked? <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting scenario. As, as we said earlier, anomalous connection of the left coronary artery to the pulmonary artery is most often uh, an isolated lesion, uh, isolated meaning that other than potential for patency of ductus arteriosus, it's not associated with other structural cardiac uh, anomalies. But there certainly are circumstances where it coexists with anomalies such as you described, ventricular septal defect or tetralogy of fellow or others. Interestingly, the presentation of the anomalous left coronary may be missed and the ambiguity results from the fact that the associated cardiac anomaly, typically one with left to right shunting like a ventricular septal defect, results in increased pressure and increased oxygen saturation uh, of the blood in the pulmonary artery uh, so that like in the fetus, the left coronary with its anomalous uh, orifice within the main pulmonary artery is being perfused at a reasonable level of pressure if it was an unrestrictive ventricular septal defect and at a higher oxygen saturation than one would typically expect the mixed venous saturation in the pulmonary artery uh, to be. So that it's, it's not inconceivable that exactly the case you described could occur and that if one has done what seemed to be a technically straightforward and successful operation to eliminate a left to right shunt as with a VSD, and if one isn't uh, suspicious or convinced that there was a serious uh, breach in myocardial protection, then certainly a plausible explanation is a coronary anomaly. And I think any time that you perform an operation for congenital heart disease and at the end of the operation have a left ventricle that looks like it's not contracting and has severe ischemic dysfunction, you have to rule out a coronary problem and among the coronary problems you have to rule out is an occult diagnosis of coronary origin from the pulmonary artery. Are there any special features of the postoperative care of these patients? I think in general, patient expectant postoperative course. More and more, uh, there are trends for fast tracking some lesions, uh, extubation in the operating room, extubation on arrival to the intensive care unit. That, in my experience, is not what you're looking to accomplish uh, with repair of Alcapa in an infant. Uh, you're looking to get that baby uh, safely into the intensive care unit on a stable inotropic regimen, uh, ventilatory support, probably with sedation and paralysis for a period anywhere from 28 to 72 hours, and then gradual uh, cautious uh, attempt at weaning from the ventilator as the first major test of the adequacy uh, of the cardiac output and then more slowly uh, weaning inotropic support. So I think uh, on the one hand patience uh, is the key word during the early post-operative phase. Uh, on the other hand one wants to be sure that if things are not steadily but gradually improving that you've investigated as necessary at least with echocardiography perhaps potentially even with cardiac catheterization to ensure that you have achieved the goal of a good two-coronary system. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, so let's go back to our original patient. After successful treatment for their Alcapa, three years later they present to clinic 
and the patient is noted to have uh, worsening mitral regurgitation with persistent left ventricular dysfunction. How should we proceed with the management and care of our patient? The first question you ask yourself, uh, as would be the case after any reparative operation for congenital heart disease, if the patient has persistence or recurrence uh, of cardiac symptoms is, did the operation achieve what it intended to do and was the result functionally durable? So essentially you're asking yourself, do we have a good two coronary system without any impediment to anti-grade flow into either coronary? So you're obligated to be sure that your revascularization of the left ventricle by either reimplantation or tunnelization to the left coronary has been successful. I would have to say that for a patient who presents with both persistent or recurrent ventricular dysfunction and mitral regurgitation, one has to have a very high index of suspicion there's something wrong with the coronary. Not necessarily that it was wrong at the time of operation, but that either with growth or over time as a result of either tension, geometry, torsion, sclerosis, scarring, or something, there's a problem with the coronary. So the first thing you need to do is prove to your satisfaction that there is or is not a problem with the coronary. Uh, if there is, it needs to be addressed and repaired, again, with the expectation that there should be a reasonable possibility, though not as high a possibility as in the first instance, of full recovery of the ventricular function and the mitral regurgitation. But certainly in this circumstance, if the coronary appears to be all right and the mitral regurgitation is more than moderate, then one has to consider that mitrovalvuloplasty or even potentially mitral valve replacement might occasionally have to be undertaken. Dr. Jacobs, thank you very much for taking your time today to uh, discuss these patients with us. And on behalf of the thoracic surgery residents, uh, thank you so much for sharing your experience on this uh, subject. David, thank you very much. Those are all interesting questions.